today is verses 1 to 6. Thus says the word of God, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Then he, that's Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among, uh, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief that he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Well, recently we saw that the Lord had a power encounter with the devil at Gergesa, where he delivered the demoniac from the legion of demons. Samson, as you are aware, had once slain the army of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, showing extraordinary strength and triumph out of circumstances of humility and weakness. But Jesus proves to be the greater Samson, as he demonstrated that he could single-handedly conquer the united strengths of the, the united strength, that is, of the armies of hell by the weapon of his word. He doesn't even need a jawbone. Yet unlike Samson, Jesus is able to rout the enemies of Yahweh that no previous king or prophet or judge could touch. The enemies that can't be seen with the eye, that can't be surmounted by any of the weapons fashioned by flesh and blood. And we read how heaven came down and filled the demoniac's soul and his heart was set free, and his mind was made sound, and the man who was a pawn of the devil was gloriously transformed into a child of God. We would have thought that the townspeople would have welcomed the presence of such miraculous grace and deliverance. But instead they rallied together and pleaded with Jesus to depart from their region they gave us a glimpse of the wickedness of mankind as they preferred to remain entrenched in their unbelief rather than to be cleansed from their filthiness and their idols. And so Jesus returned to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee where he was again met with a massive crowd that was anticipating his return. And out of that crowd, the Gospel of Mark singles out two extraordinary individuals, 
Jairus, a ruler of the local synagogue, and the woman with the unceasing hemorrhage. These stories relate to us a, another account of the amazing power of the Lord Jesus, whereby he heals the sick, redeems the afflicted, remedies the curse, raises the dead, and all this is a precursor to the power that he will exert at the end of the age when he brings to us as believers full salvation from the curse and all its catastrophes. The miracles of the gospel account are a picture of not only what Jesus did do and not only of what Jesus can do, but of what he will do when he comes for us in the fullness of his kingdom. Thus, in the flow of the narrative here in Mark's gospel, we encounter a dialectic of faith and unbelief. Faith and unbelief. Faith on the part of some, unbelief on the part of others. The revelation of Christ over the course of his ministry is such that neutrality in the face of his preaching and his truth claims becomes increasingly impossible. As the light of his revelation is turned up, so is the heat. As Christ reveals himself more and more, the elect believe and grow in faith, and the non-elect disbelieve and increase in unbelief. You cannot remain neutral in the face of the revelation of God in the gospel. As you are exposed to the light, you will either find it attractive and thus be drawn to it, or you'll find it repulsive and thus be repelled back from it. And there's a reason that no one can remain passive in the face of the truth claims of Christ. And that's because he made us. And when he did, he stamped his own image on our hearts. And since our hearts were made for God, there is embedded within us an innate receptivity to his voice. Our soul is like a radio antenna, if you will. And when the signal of God's revelation goes out, the antenna picks it up. You can turn the volume down. You can try to obscure the radio and hide it under a pillow or a blanket. Or you can turn the volume up and listen to it based on whether you want to hear it or not. But there is something deep within your soul that resonates with the voice of your creator. Our conscience, brethren, is like a conduit. When God speaks, the power of his word jolts us. And the light bulb of existential reckoning with his greatness lights up. Hence, when obstinate unbelievers hear his voice, it strikes their soul with a power that they cannot deny. And the principle of enmity that is inherent in our fallen nature bucks against that revelation with animosity unless the grace of God conquers that enmity and makes us willing to submit to his call. Thus unbelievers find it impossible 
to remain indifferent to the call of the gospel. When they hear it, they form their opinions, strong opinions about it even. They construct a fortress of lies in their mind. They barricade their hearts with artifices and deceptions, and they lash out on anyone that poses a threat to their castles and kingdoms. Well, that's what happened when our Lord Jesus returned to his hometown. Verse 1 says that he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. This was an official trip of Jesus. This wasn't a personal visit whereby he intended simply to visit with his family and mingle with them. He brought his uh, entourage of disciples with him because he was on official ministerial business. He went out from Capernaum and traveled about 25 miles southwest to his hometown of Nazareth. Doubtless, the Lord had a profound love for the people he had grown up with. And he once again returned there in the hope that they would accept the glad tidings of salvation. To his dismay, however, he was met with such hardened unbelief that his message bounced like a tennis ball off a brick wall. Their calcified hearts proved to be impenetrable. Nazareth is the town referred to in our text by the words, his own country. Our Lord was born in Bethlehem, just like the prophet said he would, but he grew up in Nazareth. There is a general disdain for Nazareth, in fact, among the Jews of his day. And we get a glimpse of that in the words of Nathaniel who, when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, retorted, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Judeans generally despised Galileans in general. After all, I mean, Galileans, uh, they were less devout, purportedly, plus their Aramaic was tainted with an accent. These were the country folk, these Galileans. But Nathaniel, himself a Galilean, here despises the town of Nazareth. And so as one scholar points out, D.A. Carson, it appears that even fellow Galileans despised Nazareth. You know, no prestigious rabbi had ever come from Nazareth, as far as we can tell. No prophet ever came from Nazareth. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament the Apocrypha, the Talmud, or the Mishnah. Josephus doesn't even mention Nazareth in his voluminous writings. It's not mentioned in classical sources or in any non-Christian sources from the Roman era. It was associated with a region that was infamous for political uprisings, rebels, as Gamaliel himself said in Acts 5.37. They thought the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And yes, he was born there, but his father moved him to Nazareth to obscure his identity until the appointed time should come. His Nazarene origins were a part of his self-abasement and humiliation. 
In fact, the epithet Jesus of Nazareth that we read over again in the New Testament was actually originally intended as a put-down for the rabbi. This guy claims to be a rabbi, and yet he comes from Nazareth? Later, when Tertullus, the orator, rose up against Paul, he denounced him, saying in Acts 24.5, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It wasn't a compliment. The population of Nazareth at the time of Jesus was about 500. Almost all Jewish. Some priests lived there too. The territory of the village occupied a space of about 60 acres. It was quite spread out. Its primary industry was agriculture, especially wheat, barley, wine, and olive oil. It would have had frequent visitors as it was located near important trade routes. The people were middle and lower class blue collar workers. The village was situated for the most part on the side of a hill. Philip Chaff, great historian, describes it quite graphically and he said, quote, on the north side of the plain of Esdralon is a crescent shaped valley about a mile long and averaging a quarter of a mile wide, but swelling out into a broader basin, completely shut in by a wall of gently rounded hills, some 15 in number and from 400 to 500 feet in height. He said, within this basin and on the lower slope of these hills is Nazareth. Although the village itself was shut in by these hills, the view from the summit behind the town is quite extensive, taking in Hermon, Carmel, Gilead, Tabor, Gilboa, and the plain of Estrelon. He says it is one of the most beautiful views in all the Holy Land, end quote. And I can testify to that because I've stood on one of those hills overlooking the modern city, which is now sadly under radical Islamic control. So that's where Jesus grew up. That's where he lived in relative obscurity for more or less 28 years of his life as he mingled as a common laborer among a very ordinary folk. And that's where he returns to in our text as he again seeks to reach them with the truth about himself. But as he does, he is again met with rejection and unbelief. And so as we take a look at this snapshot of unbelief, I have two main points to organize our thoughts. First of all, unbelief marvels at Christ. And second, Christ marvels at unbelief. The offense was mutual. Well, in the first place, unbelief marvels at Christ. No sooner does our Lord teach in the synagogue that the people again marvel at his teaching as everybody everywhere did that heard him teach. Verse 2 says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. He went straight to the heart of the observant Jewish community, to the very ones who should have been receptive to his message. 
was typical for a traveling rabbi to be invited to address the people and give the teaching in the synagogue. But this will be the last time in the Gospel of Mark that the synagogue will be open to Jesus. One commentator explains that subsequent references to synagogues in Mark are mentioned as places of ostentation and of persecution against Jesus' disciples. And so this was apparently the end of our Lord's acceptance among the religious establishment. And the text says, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They were astonished, it says. But this isn't the astonishment of admiration, but rather of scorn and envy. The Greek word means to amaze or astonish, as it's translated. Here it's in the passive voice, which means to be literally overwhelmed. Hence, they marveled. The tense of the verb, imperfect, in this context suggests that this was not a momentary thought, but an abiding sentiment among them. Their subsequent questions of derision were born out of this sense of offense and amazement. Now, they knew he didn't get these things, as they say it, from Nazareth, or from anybody in Nazareth, for that matter. He was functioning as a rabbi, but the wisdom with which he spoke and the power with which he wrought miracles didn't make any sense to the Nazarenes, and so they were shocked at it. He had never studied under any reputable rabbi, and in that day, such an apprenticeship was deemed to be the only acceptable path to becoming a rabbi. He was seen as an imposter who promoted himself into a position of prominence. They thought that his fame had gotten to his head. Would have been tantamount, let's say, to a seminary professor today who never got a master's degree or a doctorate, but in fact, back then, for a rabbi to be functioning as a rabbi that never studied under another rabbi was even more out of place. But Jesus, he didn't need any of that because he was the wisdom of God incarnate. He's the very one who is the light of all knowledge and truth in the world. He is the omniscient logos who is truth itself. He's the one who inspired the scriptures. But they didn't see it. And to them, it was all so out of place that they viewed him as a living contradiction of everything they deemed to be rational and acceptable. And so in verse 3, they ask, Is this not the carpenter? They know his name, but out of scorn, they won't even use it. They call him this man in verse 2. And this, or literally, this one, or this guy, in verse 3. They're saying, in essence, who does this guy think he is? He's gotten too big for his britches. The repeated use of demonstrative pronouns in the original, rather than of his name, was a way 
by which the Nazarenes were distancing themselves from him and disowning him as one of them. They won't even address him with the honorific title of rabbi. To them, he's just a carpenter, the carpenter, the town carpenter. They knew him. They had solicited his business. He had built things for them in the past. Carpenter, in fact, comes from the word tectone, from which we get the word architect, which means chief builder. Tectone was a broad word that could describe a builder or constructor of many kinds. Hence, it could refer to a stonemason, a metal worker, a constructor of homes and walls, a craftsman, or a carpenter who makes things out of wood. Stone was more abundant than wood in Nazareth, so Jesus probably worked with both to make ends meet. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr said that he made plows and yokes out of wood. And so he made tools for farmers to use with their oxen. That was very probable in the agrarian society of Nazareth, as there would have been a good market for those things. He probably made furniture, too, and maybe helped to build homes out of stone and clay, because that's what homes in Nazareth were built out of. It's a very humble job for the king of the world and the royal offspring of David. The Jews weren't expecting for the son of David to be an ordinary blue-collar worker and manual laborer. Hence their offense at at his claims of being the Messiah. And they continue, is this not the son of Mary? Son of Mary? This was an expression of contempt. Jewish men were always identified by their father, not by their mother. Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jewish men were referred to by their father. Even when their father was dead, as Joseph probably was at this time. But by identifying him as the son of Mary, they were saying, we know where this fellow's from. He comes from that lady who bore an illegitimate child, in their estimation. They didn't accept the virgin birth, of course. As they put it in John 8, 31, we were not born of fornication, thus implying that he was, and betraying their unbelief about his supernatural origin. This lie, that he was born illegitimately, actually became mainstream narrative in Jewish polemics against Christianity, and has often been repeated in the centuries since then. In our text, they are basically accusing him of being a child born out of proper wedlock, which would have been quite the scandal in a society with a very low divorce rate, much unlike ours. Well, this had to be deeply wounding for the Lord, who loved them beyond words, and who grew up with them. I mean, this was his extended family and friends and acquaintances and business partners. And then they say, is this not the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, 
are not his sisters here with us. They knew his family. They knew his family quite well in a village of 500. These were all children of Joseph and Mary, the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus. But his siblings were a bit different from him, you see. His siblings were ordinary sinners like the rest of the Nazarenes, and the rest of the Nazarenes knew that quite well. In fact, his siblings didn't even believe in him at this time. John 7, 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him, and they wouldn't believe until after his resurrection. And so all this unbelief and opposition was part of our Lord's trials as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And you know, some of our deepest wounds can come from those we care about the most, can't they? And so verse 3 concludes, they were offended at him. They were offended. Now our English word offended can take in can be taken in multiple ways. Someone can be offended a lot or a little. But in the original, the word is scandalizo, from which we get our word to be scandalized. This wasn't a minor offense. They found his extraordinary wisdom and power to be altogether scandalous to him. The word originally spoke of a snare or a trap in which an animal was caught and killed. And it's used in the New Testament quite often of stumbling and falling into eternal damnation. The noun form of this word is found in passages like 1 Peter 2.8, which quotes from Isaiah in calling Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But as Jesus said in Luke 20, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of the temple house of God. And whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, which it will on the day of judgment, it will grind him to powder. They were being broken and their unbelief would result in them being grinded into powder by the wrath of the holy God for rejecting his son. Unbelief is a dastardly sin that meets its end in nothing less than the eternal fury of the Almighty. The Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus went to Nazareth, he preached the most extraordinary sermon that has ever been preached. He opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read a prediction about the Messiah. The spirit of Yahweh, God, is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he closed the book and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a sermon. When they began to murmur against him, he rebuked them and preached the doctrine of sovereign election to them. There were many widows in Elijah's day, but to none of them was he sent except to this one. The Lord passed over all the rest and elected this one as the special object of his mercy and grace. And so what he was saying to them in effect was, you are rejecting me because you are not the elect of God. And then it says, so all those in the synagogue... When they heard these things, 
were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. Remember, Nazareth was on the precipice of a hill, a cliff. It says that they might throw him down over the cliff. What a sermon. What a climax. What a reaction. He sure knew how to strike a raw nerve. What a way to receive your king. And what a dark picture of how wicked mankind is apart from regenerating and sanctifying grace. These, again, were the people he had grown up with and knew his whole life. For 28 years or so, he had attended the synagogue with these very same people. They were his clients, his schoolmates, his comrades and friends. But the light of his holiness was so piercing, you see, that they could not endure it without gnashing their teeth and being filled with wrath. It's all quite remarkable. Hence our second main point, Christ marvels at unbelief. We see this in verse 6, which says, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Now, why did the Lord marvel at their unbelief? What, what was so surprising about it? He marveled because it was absolutely inexcusable. Talk about the absurdity of unbelief. Unbelief obfuscates the obvious. They knew better. They had more light than any people group on earth. They had more light than any town or village or city on, on God's green earth. They claimed to be the people of God. And yet here they were rejecting God by slandering and wanting to murder his son. Unbelief in Christ boils down to unbelief in God. For the Father and the Son are one in the ontological trinity. They are one in the works of creation and providence. They are one in the work of redemption. And they are one in the unified revelation and testimony that they give of themselves. Though the people of Nazareth were all professing Jews, they cast out the Christ because they had already rejected God. And their religiosity was a farce. All unbelief is inexcusable. The light of nature itself renders it unexcusable. Paul said in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse anapologetos in the Greek from which we get our word apologetics. It's a negation. Thus it could be rendered without an apologetic. All unbelievers are rendered without an apologetic. They have no viable defense for their unbelief. And the absurdity of unbelief is further compounded by the additional light of the revelation of the law and the gospel through Christ who is in their midst. Unbelief never stems from a lack of evidence. You know, that's the claim of the agnostic. 
that God hasn't given sufficient testimony of himself for anybody to come to any certainty about his existence. But not so. People willfully shut their eyes. They willfully stop their ears. They willfully distort and twist and misinterpret and obfuscate the clear evidence and testimony that God has given of himself. John Calvin said, quote, The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because blind men do not perceive its light. Unbelief makes us rebels and deserters. It's always proud. Our own unbelief is the only impediment which prevents God from satisfying us largely and bountifully with all good things. End quote. But if they see a miracle, they'll believe. No, they won't. No, they won't. Miracles do nothing to jolt bullheaded miscreants out of their unbelief. The miracles of Christ were undeniable. Even the people of Nazareth admitted that his miracles were authentic. We see that in verse 2, where they say, What wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They call them mighty works. The Greek phrase can be rendered, miraculous works of power such as these. They observe the mighty works brought by his own hands. But the knowledge of his miracles only contributed to their contempt for his person. The miracles were just a greater influx of light in addition to all the light that they had already received. But the increase of light that was given them only evoked a more acute animosity toward him that derived from the radical enmity that was rooted in their hearts. Atheists will say, let God show me some sign, then I'll believe. They won't. I remember when I was a new convert, I was so excited about the gospel I knew that God had forgiven my sin and given me the greatest gift of all, everlasting life. And I thought, this is the best news in the entire world. And I assumed that all my friends would think the same thing as soon as I could meet with them and explain it to them at length. But when I went to my entire circle of friends, one by one, and shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ and how he had transformed my soul, they all rejected it. Most of them mocked and scoffed. In fact, every single one of them, except for one who later abandoned Christianity altogether after making an initial profession. And I'll never forget one of my friends said, he, he was one of my best friends for years, and he said, I'm from Missouri. The show me state. He said, show me a miracle and I'll believe. But before I could respond at any length, he gave me a flurry of profanities and said, get out of my house. His language was more colorful. And don't you ever dare to step foot back on my doorstep again, he said. And later I thought, man, you are so 
pig-headed in your wickedness, don't you realize that your entire life is a miracle? I mean, the fact that God hasn't yet struck you with a lightning bolt, despite your despicable blasphemies, the fact that you're still breathing on God's good earth is itself a testimony to his mercy and a miracle. But unbelievers, they refuse to see it. It's not because God hasn't spoken. It's not because he hasn't spoken clearly, but because they are plugging their ears to his voice. As Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. God has spoken through the prophets and these latter days he's spoken through his son And he continues to speak to us today through his living voice in the scriptures by the Spirit. What's as Abraham said to the rich man who was being tormented in hell? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see a resurrection from the dead, then, then they'll believe. But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The clearest, most definitive, self-attesting and spirit-authenticated revelation of God and testimony that he has given concerning himself is in his written word. And if the unbeliever won't hear that, they won't believe. They'll one rise from the dead. So unbelief isn't from a lack of evidence. It stems from a heart that's enshrouded in darkness and that abhors the thought of its perversity being exposed. Thus, as John 3.19 puts it so clearly, this is the condemnation, the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. Never did he commit a single sin against anybody. He was the humblest, most serviceable, most kind-hearted, most generous person that had ever graced their village. But as the old adage goes, familiarity breeds contempt. As he put it in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. He was feeling the sting of that reality. About a year earlier, his own family had already made the 50-mile round-trip journey to Capernaum. Why? To silence him. We saw that in Mark 3.21 when we were in that text where it says, when his own people heard about the things he was doing and teaching, that was his mother and his brothers, his own people. It says, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They were basically planning to apprehend him, to, to, to kidnap him and bind him like a lunatic to carry him away back to Nazareth and probably to lock him in some room until, in their estimation, he would come to his senses. 
even the virgin mother, the blessed virgin, herself a devout believer, succumbed to the influence of the unbelief of those around her and was tainted by it. Truly, a prophet is not without honor except in his own house. Then we read in verse 5, now he, curious language here in the text, he could do no mighty work there, talking about miracles, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This saying has puzzled many interpreters down through the centuries because it seems to limit the power of Christ. But it doesn't. The reason he could not is because he would not. It wasn't from a lack of power, but from a lack of willingness. And so we have to distinguish between what Jonathan Edwards called in one of his famous treaties, physical inability and moral inability. The omnipotence of God means he is able to do all that he wills to do. But he's not able to do what he does not will to do because his will is identical with his being just as his power is one with his essence. Jesus wasn't a magician who came to put on a show for scoffers. He would later say to the Pharisees, a wicked and adulterous generation looks or seeks after a sign no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He refused to give them more signs because they were motivated by malice and adamant in their unbelief, and he would have nothing to do with capitulating to their sinful motives. So what practical lessons can we draw from our text? Let me give you a few. First, we see here, the heinousness and enormous guilt of the sin of unbelief. And I know people don't see unbelief this way. In fact, it's normally the one sin that no one can see unless a special work of the Holy Spirit through supernatural operation convinces them of it. John 16, the Lord said, when the spirit of truth is come, the comforter, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe on me. To be convicted of unbelief requires the work of the spirit because we're blind to it. We're just blind to it. Just look at the laws of the nations. They outlaw, they outlaw all kinds of sin, Right? Thievery, murder, slander, perjury, many such things. But unbelief is deemed perfectly lawful. Men flatter themselves that they are morally good as long as they don't run headlong into these other sins, but they remain blind to their unbelief, which is the strength and source of all their other sins. It's a peculiarly blinding sin because it shuts our eyes from the ability to discern the faith and allegiance and devotion and respect that we owe to God as our creator and savior. 
It is thus blatant rebellion against the whole first table of the law in addition to being a rejection of the gospel. Unbelief goes hand in hand with pride. As Thomas Brooks said, it's a mother sin, a breeding sin, a sin that has all sorts of sin in the womb with it. George Smeaton wrote, quote, Unbelief may be called the mother sin because it not only leaves all guilt remaining, but gives force to reigning sins, end quote. By reigning sins, he means sins that have dominion over the hearts of the unconverted. He calls unbelief the chief and supreme sin and the sin by eminence because it not only lies at the root of each and every sin that we commit, but it's a sin against the gracious remedy that God has provided for our reconciliation to himself. To remain in unbelief after hearing about Christ is to transgress against the law and the gospel, and thus to make oneself a twofold child of hell. What a heinous, enormous sin. But second, unbelief is ultimately the only damning sin. Ultimately the only damning sin. To be clear, every sin merits the eternal vengeance of God. But in the face of the infinitely holy God, of course, there is no such thing as an innocent peccadillo But whereas all other sins have been and may be forgiven, the sin of unbelief is the one sin that if you die under its sway, you will lose your soul forever. Thus, unbelief is sometimes described in the scriptures as if it were the only sin. It's not the only sin, but sometimes it's described as if it were. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever does not believe will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Augustine noted that while unbelief continues, all other sins are retained. But when unbelief departs, all other sins are remitted. Luther picked up on that and said that unbelief alone will condemn the soul because it makes the person evil and the works that he or she does evil. And so it's ultimately the only condemning, ultimately the only damning sin. Third, unbelief is altogether unreasonable. Not only is it inexcusable, it's altogether unreasonable. I mean, why would anyone in their right mind reject the Lord Jesus Christ? He is altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful. He will never do you any harm. And he promises you life and life more abundantly. And never will a single one of his promises ever fail. He always keeps his word. He is faithful. He is infinitely glorious in himself. And he offers you the gospel freely, freely, without money and without Christ. He offers forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, 
He offers you a kingdom filled with unspeakable and everlasting joys that satisfy the soul with the best things that no tongue can even describe. He offers you rags for your riches, purity in the place of uncleanness, and righteousness that will swallow up all your shame and all your guilt. Now, if the greatest man in the world, let's say, in your opinion, the greatest man in the world, let's say some president or king or celebrity or whoever it might be that you greatly esteem, if that man wanted to be your friend, your sincerest and best friend, would you not leap at the opportunity to reciprocate on that offer? If if he invited you to fly away with him and enjoy his mansions and feast at his table and help manage his estates, how excited you would get. There wouldn't be any reluctance, would there? How much greater is this man, the Lord of glory, who offers you friendship, an intimate companionship, and a place of honor at his table in his kingdom through the gospel. You'd be a fool not to receive this offer. And so unbelief is unreasonable. And finally, unbelief is superable with the help of God. Not in our own strength, of course, but it is superable with the help of God. It can be overcome. And yes, we as believers will battle with unbelief for the rest of our Christian lives. But its dominion and rule in the heart of man can be overthrown through one simple act. The simplest of all acts by the simple exercise of childlike faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and in the merits of his atoning blood. You don't have to scale the heights of Mount Everest in search of some hidden treasure. You don't have to plumb the depths of the ocean in in search of some obscure hidden pearl. All you have to do is receive the claims of the gospel and believe in the Christ of the gospel. As Mark 16, 16 puts it, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Or as Paul put it in Romans 3.20, a man is justified by faith alone, faith alone apart from the deeds of the law. It's much harder to keep fighting against the light than it is to put down your weapons and simply surrender to it by grace. Well, may the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, oh, we bless you for promising that one day, real soon, our remaining unbelief will be gone forever. That never again will we cast out Christ from our thoughts or disregard him in our actions and As we walk now by faith and not by sight, Father, we are thankful that our faith will soon give way to sight. Keep us until that day. In the name of Christ our Savior, we do ask. Amen.